All right, here we are. We're back. That was Manchester, Kishibashi, John Duckworth, Alexopoulos, here with Robert Lang. And that was a great song. I see what you mean by the, uh, the crescendo yeah. and the power. And uh, it's great. And music can be such an inspiration for people's imagination, which you were just talking about. Um, hopefully some of our listeners caught a little bit of that. Yeah. And if you haven't gotten enough, if you're looking to get a little more inspiration, just go to robertlangstudios.com and take a look at some of Rob's work. And if that doesn't blow you away, or at least send you on a Google search for miniature lions, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't know what will. Uh, but you then, uh, you mentioned that, uh, I'm curious about your meditation practice, because I know you've been doing that for a little while. And I'm wondering what we lined up to talk about here next was a trip you took to Annapurna Pass mm -hmm. in 2010. And, and you had already, at what point, I guess, backing up prior to that, at what point did meditation enter your life? I'd say, so that was 2010, I'd probably like shortly after opening the gallery, like 2005, 2006. You know, I, I grew up Catholic. I, I love the idea of the spiritual realm. Um, and I had this, this great uncle, and um, his name was Basil Pennington. I was going to ask you about yeah. this anyway, so and I'm he, glad you bring that up. He was yeah. a, if I ever had like an idol or a mentor, um, this man was like, you know, 6'6", six, 6'8", six, six, 260 pound Trappist monk. And he traveled all over the world. Um, he got in like a cargo ship when he was 17 and went to China by hiding on it. And that's how his like life started. And he was this brilliant, brilliant man. So in the end, he, he wrote 75 books. He performed mass in like 112 countries. He knew Mother Teresa was with her on her deathbed. He had met John Paul, the Pope, multiple times. He was friends with Walt Disney. He knew, he was just one of these people that walked the earth with this, this effortless way, this open heart. And he, because he was so big, he was just a sight to be seen. So when I was at Northeastern University, he would say, you know, can I come see you? And we'll share, we'll break bread, we'll share a meal. And I was like, of course, Uncle Bob, is what I called him. And um, so he arrives at Northeastern and, and I'm like, well, where do you want to go for dinner? And he's like, why don't we go somewhere you go all the time? Why don't we go to your dining hall? And I was like, uh, okay, okay. You know, I'm like 18 years old, freshman, don't really know everybody that well yet here. And let's go to the freshman dining hall with a six foot six, six, eight, you know, monk. <laughs> that'll, that'll work well. So we go down there and I'm like, oh my God, where are we going to sit? You look in and every single table is like, you know, you're going to have to sit with somebody. So I'm like, how about you find us a seat and I'll go get us some food. And, you know, he sits down next to the lacrosse team. And I'm like, awesome. That's exactly who I would have picked. You know, the, the, the machismo, testosterone driven, 18 year old muscle bound lacrosse kids. Cool. This is going to be great. So I look over and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a rough meal. And, and I go over there and he sits down and you see these guys just immediately puff up, get a little peacocked out, look directly at him of like, what are you doing? And he reaches out his hand and he puts it on the shoulder of the kid he's sitting right next to. And he says, hello, brother, how was your day? And you see this kid just, his shoulders just melt in, in front of, in, in his presence and cut to half an hour later, Uncle Bob's sharing stories. They're sharing stories. We're like literally around a campfire in a freshman dining hall because he, that's just the way he rolled. He wasn't afraid of anyone or anything. He didn't judge anyone or anything. He did not go around witnessing and trying to bring, you know, his religious doctrine into their worlds. He just was who he was. 
And so he was, he was the first person since, you know, I was a lapsed Catholic already where I was like, as soon as I could get out of the Catholic church, I was, I was kind of ready. Cause it just, the mass just didn't do anything for me. I always felt like it was droning on. Everybody was, I, I didn't feel the spirit anymore. Like I did maybe when I was, when I was a kid. So I knew I wanted to find it again in some way, but I wanted it the, like the, the way he had it. And, you know, in 2005, um, I believe he, he passed away and, you know, and, we go up for the funeral and thousands of people show up at this monastery. They are flying in from all over the world. He has, he has profoundly affected all these people. And, and the man giving this, you know, the, the, the eulogy is, you know, going, has this incredible, he's like an 85-year-old monk going, you know, Basil was a mountain and, and has this big theatrical voice. And he, he talks about this, this way that this man affected everyone. And I look around and I'm like, he did, you know, he didn't own anything. He donated every single bit of profit he made from his 75 books. And his book, Centering Prayer, was printed, you know, like 20 million times or something like that. And all of it just went back into the world and he just lived with, you know, nearly nothing. And two weeks later, even though I am one of his great nephews and my mom is one of eight siblings and there are many family members kind of ahead of me, uh, two weeks later, a package came in the mail and the four objects he owned, he left to me. And nobody really knew how Why? he came to that decision. Yeah, like what, there was no reason for it. There was, I don't understand what the, why he would choose me out of all these other family members, but I immediately took it to a, like a call to action type of feeling of like, no, now it is my job to bring that into the world. And, and the, my favorite part about him was that he was lighthearted. He just, you know, if someone had passed away, if someone, whatever, he just, he celebrated in their life and Nothing seemed to really get hung up inside of him. He seemed to just be light on his feet, even though he was a giant. So what's funny is we named our son, you know, kind of thinking of him as the namesake. And we call him Bear. And I'm like, you know, if we consider Uncle Bob the, the namesake and, and call him Bear, we might have a big baby. So, right. you know, this, this nearly, you know, 10, 10 and a half pound baby comes out of my, my small wife. And at, at six months old, he's 30 pounds. We, we're literally raising a giant, but he is, he is in the same way. He's, he's smiley and easy on his feet and, and light and, and wonderful. It's interesting because when you describe this uncle, the great uncle of yours, yeah. uh, minus the six foot six, 260 pound aspect, you share a lot in common with him. There's a certain effortlessness and ease of approaching the world and other people that you carry in the same way. Like you, you could just, you could describe yourself with those same words, which <laughs> well, is that's probably nice why <laughs> he. Well, having never met him, but that description I think is appropriate for you as well, and I'm sure he must have recognized that, and that you might take up some sort of. And not just responsibility, but a bit but, of a mission. Be inspired it, by yeah. that moment and a, a mission, yeah, to he, carry um, on. If there was a physical trait that I loved about him, is like I felt like he had like one extra twinkle in his eye, mm. and I'm like, I don't know how you get that, but I want that twinkle. And I has I have a feeling it's it's being okay with yourself. It's he's mm. so okay with himself. So I started, you know, reading and looking in different directions. So I was looking into. Uh, Buddhism and Taoism and, 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 and really anything I could get my hands on. And I started, you know, hearing about meditation, but feeling like it was this thing that was, I, I had to learn it in order to, to um, experience it. And really the guru that showed up in my life is my mother-in-law, my um, wife's uh, mother, Lucy, is one of these people that doesn't need to say much and yet somehow seems like she is just, you know, a, a powerhouse of, of energy 
and she moves very gently and quietly and, and deliberately. And if she eats a muffin, it'll somehow take 45 minutes. And you're like, how, how, how could you possibly be eating this slow? And yet at the same time, you're like, I wish I could eat that slow and be present <laughs> with a muffin like that. And, you know, and then I would, I would hear of her, she'd do these, these Vespasnas and then she was off to Fiji and she did a 30 day silent meditation without making eye contact with another person. And you're like, uh, I don't know what happens during that, but I guarantee that would bring me closer to who I, I wish to be. Because as she said, you know, when you sit with the self long enough, it, you unravel, like, you know, and in those 10 day ones, she's like, you know, about three days in, everyone starts dismantling and things start kind of coming to the surface that you did not realize were, were a part of you. And so I decided, I'm like, I'm going to sit down and meditate. So I immediately started kind of researching every different type of meditation. And I was trying to follow these rules. And what happened is over about a year and a half, two years worth of time, I realized that I wanted meditation to be mine and my own personal, you know, vocabulary. And as I started allowing myself to see it through my own lens, I started feeling and experiencing things that, you know, were, that were amazing. And uh, I started to come to the realization that all these peak moments in life, this, you know, the first time that you have sex, the, when your wedding day, this day with all your best friends, when you win the state championship, the yada, yada, all these moments or whatever that we, and that euphoria that we feel, that, that energy that's flowing through our body in this incredible flow state, we act as if the external events in our life bring those moments to us, as opposed to recognizing that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that that feeling is just readily available if you call it. And so my meditative practice started becoming about like listening um, is the best way I can describe it, where I, I would close my eyes and I would try to listen to the undercurrent that was mm. taking place in the world. And, and I felt like there was this, you know, I'm going to use all these generic terms of, of energy and, and vibration and this and that, whatever, that seemed to be just kind of all around. And, and if if I asked for it, it would fill, fill my, my spirit or my body. Um, and all I had to do was give myself permission to, to go there. And then the, the, the meditation just started becoming deeper and deeper. And, and, and I started realizing that if I did this on a daily basis, I could always bring myself back to ground, you know, ground zero. And that mm -hmm. every day I could tackle with, with a certain amount of confidence because I knew at the end of the day or, or at some point during that day, I would come back to me. And I found in those meditations, that that's who I was interacting with or who I was witnessing. I felt like I was standing in front of a mirror looking at the person I actually am. Mm. And, and as this process unfolds, you get an invite from your father-in-law? Yeah. So I have a very quirky father-in-law who is a psychologist. Um, who is the kind to like get dropped off by a helicopter in Ecuador to live with like indigenous people um, for a few weeks. Or, you know, if he goes anywhere, his, his goal is to not, you know, spend, he just did, when he retired, he did a, you know, wanted to do a six month trip and he took a small backpack, like a school backpack and a camera and no destination, just left. And, you know, he's in India and Sri Lanka and Indonesia, um, Bhutan, all these places. And, and all the time he stayed in a hotel like three nights. And the rest of the time he just found people and lived with them. And he's one of these people that just doesn't seem to follow any rules. So when he told me he was going on this adventure to Nepal with a couple buddies, he's like, you want to tag along? And I was like, yeah, these are all these seasoned, you know, early 60-year-old men who have some wisdom to maybe share with me. And I'm at this, this 
this high point right now of You're my at a own. ripe stage. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, I, I'm ready for this. This is going to be amazing. And we're going to the Himalayas. I mean, like, what else could you ask for? And then the um, in Iceland, a giant volcano erupted, and it basically grounded everyone in Europe and a good part of the United States. And, and getting to Nepal was, we were literally the last flight, I believe, that that got over there before pretty much everything else that was heading that direction had to be grounded for a couple of days. And just so the two of you. So it, now it's just me and my father-in-law, which all of a sudden becomes, oh boy, I'm about to really get to know my psychologist father-in-law. Great. I'm going to unravel. And what uh, was you're going to unravel yeah. and be analyzed <laughs> yeah. at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Like every, you know, thing that comes out of your mouth, you're like, you know, he, he does hear all of this and he's making his diagnosis. And, you know, I really hope <laughs> at the end he sees me as sane, you know what I mean? And, and, um, and what was amazing about it is he, he allowed for me to have my own experience. We got to, to Kathmandu and I remember him saying, you know, like, you want to go find dinner? And he points at this, like, you know, 10,000 person uh, tarp um, slum. And I'm like, uh, find dinner where? And he's like, in there. We'll just meet some people and have dinner with them. And I'm like, I don't know if we're supposed to go in there. And so we end up going in there and we sit with a family of eight under like an eight by 10 foot tarp. And we have black tea and we have soup and we, and, and we connect with people. And I realized he's a master of just allowing anyone on, of any walk of life anywhere to just be his friend and he'll be their friend if they're open to it. And so immediately I was like, oh, this trip is, I mean, we're like <laughs> three hours in and I'm like, oh God, this thing is going to, this trip is going to be crazy. This is good. And so we decided, hmm. you know, we're going to do the Annapurna circuit. It's about 150 mile hike over three weeks. And what was so nice about it is, you know, I did have a lot of my own time. And then I got a lot of time with a man who has seen a lot over the years, who gave, you know, some some points of wisdom. And one of my favorite, and I, I, just because we're, we're doing this right now, I'd love to share, but it goes towards parenting. One of the, the neatest pieces of advice I was ever given was on this trip. And so we're up in these, these high mountains. There's no, you know, TV, radio. There's no, you know, electricity in a lot of spots. And a phone call is not going to be an easy one to make or whatever. And so we're talking about, you know, my relationship with my own parents and how much I love them. But I'm at this time where I'm pulling away and want them to change and this and that, whatever. And I'm going through with all, you know, mid-20s are doing. And, and he says, well, let me tell you this about parenting. In all the years I've been a parent, if you give your kid these four table legs, this is, you know, my own personal belief. But if you give them these four table legs, they're going to be okay. They're going to be able to stand on their feet and they're going to be good in this world. But I guarantee you, however many you're able to give to your kid, your father was given, uh, given less. So basically, the further you go back, the less of these table legs are being given because as society changes, we're more apt to give our children these things. And so the four things are this. They need to feel safe both physically and emotionally. I'm like, okay, that's, that's, I can handle that one. They need to feel as if they are in no way a carbon copy of you, that they are their own individual selves. They are not mini-me's. They are not whatever. They are unique into this world and they are not you. He's like, this is the one that really gets people for therapy. They need to know that their actions affect you, whether positive or negative. He's like, I meet so many of these guys who became investment bankers to make some, you know, hordes of money just so that their father will finally be affected by their action, that they'll finally recognize that they've done well mm. or done poorly. And he's like, I meet all these people that, you know, they did bad things and their parents didn't care. They did good things and their parents just really didn't care. And he's like, that's, and, and lastly, he's like, you know, um, if they take interest in something, you must take interest in it. 
And so if it's they're interested in bugs and you couldn't care less about bugs, get interested in bugs because just because you played basketball and volleyball doesn't mean bring that to your children's lives. Um, and so he says, you know, how many were you given? I was like, wow, I'm so, so fortunate, you know, and this and that. And so I'm like, I'm going to give myself like a 3.4. You know, <laughs> where he was like, now, how many was your dad given? And I was like, oh my God, he was given like a 2.8. You know what I mean? And I'm given some sort of roundabout number in my head of, of these table legs. And I have this epiphany, this moment of, oh my gosh, I need to call my father and tell him how much I love him. Because the fact uh. of the matter is he's always was trying to do better by me than maybe had been done towards him. So Nepal was filled with these type of things, these little philosophical moments and musings from this, this, this profound man, a ton of silence in this space. You know, we were able to go over the Thrang La, which is the world's highest pass without technical climbing. And I decided to do it by myself that morning. So it's like 3 a.m. you leave and you get to the top of this pass and, and Tibet is right in front of you and the Himalayas are all around you and you watch the sunrise over the Himalayas and you're like, well, that's <laughs> something that you're, you know, I'll probably be able to remember forever. But also in that moment, which was so neat, was I realized there was nothing different inside me. I was still the same person and I didn't need the sunrise over the Himalayas to conjure up the spirit. I could go there, you know, in an alleyway on a dark rainy night in Charleston if I, if I wished to. And it was, it was so liberating because it made me realize I didn't have to keep seeking hmm. something. Instead, I could just be, be there and go there and, and that it can be that big and beautiful and profound. Your inner self is, is, is more vast than the Himalayas. Yeah, exactly. But you know, I, I hear this, it's interesting because it's, a, it's something that, it's a question I ask of myself in these same moments is, could you have come to that realization without going to the Himalayas? I don't, because I think right? I always feel that, like grass is greener. Like some, if I went there, then I would be it's that, that much more spiritually profound. That gives you that awareness, right? Yeah. Like, oh, wow, you know, and uh, I can get this same experience, you know, back in Charleston. And it totally makes sense that everyone has to go through their own path in yeah. that way. Because I'm like, yeah. I think about all, all the wisdom my own parents have imparted that I didn't hear until I experienced. Yeah, right. And you're like, and that's with kids too. It's like, yeah. don't, don't get too close to the stairs. Don't get too close to the stairs. And they fall down the stairs. You're like, now you know. Don't get now too close you know. to the stairs, right? I'll tell you what, interesting, because some of the things you gleaned from that experience, uh, the one that I find most fascinating, um, because I haven't actually been to India or to Thailand or to the East, where all of these contemplative practices that I'm so fascinated by, or the majority of them, uh, originate. And the culture there, the people there, you talk about Ishmael, and he, de he defines you know, the Western mother culture. And you reference that term when describing the mother culture in this place you were in the East being very different. Oh, and so connective. Yeah, I've heard from multiple uh, Tibetans uh, speak about this concept of even just self-loathing, which as a Western concept is pretty common. And people will come to the Dalai Lama or other gurus and spiritual leaders from that denomination and talk about this concept. And every single one says, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we, don't have a, um, we don't have a word for low self-esteem in our language. What do you mean by that? They're like, I like me. Yeah, you know, it's like really, they have this. It's like, why don't yeah, you like you? It's so, I was looking this so, up. Like, one guy's response was, I, I quote, it's not possible. It doesn't exist. <laughs> So, I mean, that's just to set the stage for a completely different underpinning for a culture that really was mesmerizing for you, right? Yeah, I mean, I would, everywhere I looked, it's like 
you know, taking photographs was the perfect example. If I take a photograph in the United States and I say, can I take your portrait? The cheesiness shows up in an instant. It's like they stand up straighter, cock their head a little to the side, their perfect smile shows up and they like squint their eyes as much as they're supposed to squint their eyes for a beautiful photo. And I'm like, okay. Over there, I say, can I take your photo? They just look directly into the lens of the camera as real as they were one second ago. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I didn't know anyone behaved this way. It was so kind of like, awkward at first, yeah. you said. Well, I, I didn't know why everyone would look so directly in my eyes. Okay. I thought I was a spectacle. And oh. in, two, in some degrees, you know, you are, if you go into a certain village and you're, you know, you stand out a little bit, but I realized it wasn't, if they, everyone was looking at everybody in every conversation and interaction with just like, um, they weren't waiting for their turn to speak. They were listening to each other and looking at each other. And I was like, this is weird. You know, these people are so just engaging with each other. And, you know, you'd wake up in the morning and all everyone would come outside and sweep the city. Like everyone, kids, parents, whatever. And they just clean up the city from the day before. And I'm like, is this like a, is this like community service? You have to do this? What's the, and they're like, no, yeah, of course. Everyone wakes up and we just make sure that our city is, you know, prideful. But it's like this, like the whole village was just a team for 15 minutes just to make sure that this this ancient, beautiful city stayed the way it was supposed to stay. And I was like, oh, what would it would take <laughs> to get my like neighborhood to be like, every day, guys, we're going to get up at the same time. We're going to go outside and we're going to clean up the neighborhood. I'm like, you know, that's a... It's a different task. It's a big social project that needs... We'll put a committee together yeah. to discuss that <laughs> yeah. and then vote on it. Okay? And then we will... <laughs> yeah. So it was one of these things where the the people in general just they were so easy to come by, and at the end I realized that they were content. And so, like my one of my porters, you know, I'm walking up this mountain, breathing very heavy, in my North Face and my Merrill and all my clothing, and I'm this and that, whatever. And he's carrying like 150 of my pounds of of you know materials and lunch and food and this and that, whatever. And he's in flip flops. And, you know, his name's Narun. And and we get to the top and we've hiked for eight hours that day. And we've the elevation shifts have been dramatic. And I'm literally like, ah, I am beat. And he gets there and he takes down this and he's just got this beaming smile of like, should we get some tea? Should we hang out? Should we talk? Whatever. And I'm like, you had like a <sighs> grueling day um, with no real financial reward to it. And you're doing this all for my somehow like entertainment and joy. And yet... You seem like you're easier to be happy right now than me, who's like, oh, my ankles hurt a little bit because of this and uh, the labored breathing because of the high elevation and this. And I'm like complaining a little bit in my head. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, it, his job is, is, is tenfold what mine was today. And he is just a huge happy. smile on his face. Yeah. The generosity mm -hmm. of spirit, yeah. right? I mean, which uh, is a beautiful thing, particularly around this time of year, the holidays. Yeah. Um, help me crystallize and for our listeners, maybe some of the parts of you that you left there and some of the parts of you that you put on as you re-entered a world vastly different. Well, I came back 30 pounds lighter and um, I never cut my, shaved my beard and I went over there with a pretty good sized beard. So I came back and, and I couldn't speak, you know, cause Megan's father's psychology, he speaks at like this level at all times anyways. So I came back speaking at this level and I was so, I was so blissed out. You know, I felt like everything was so easy, whatever like that. And I arrived at Chicago O'Hare <laughs> on like 
like a, I can't remember, it was like the NFC Championship or something like that had happened. It was, it was some sporting event had happened. And, um, and the, the entire airport is just filled with gray, large people. And there's this cacophony of noise and lights and color and whatever. And I had just come back and I was like, oh, I am determined to stay where I am through this. And what happened is you're basically entering an ocean of your own culture that slowly started to, you know, seep back in pretty quickly. At first I thought I was coming back and I was going to be this wise, quiet sage for the rest of my life. And, and that faded away. But a lot of the doctrines, a lot of the principles, the parts that I really wanted to hold on to were the fact that like you always have this opportunity no matter who it is. And, you know, I get to play a little bit of a public persona in the gallery to just look at the person who walks through the door as another human being and see if you can connect with them. And I'm like, that that was the the strength that I felt like I was able to bring back from this culture. And, and what I was able to leave there was this desire to climb to the top of mountains. Um, Three Cups of Tea was one of the books I read while I was there. It was a great, you know, another really quick and wonderful book. But, you know, he climbs all these 8,000 meter peaks and then he realizes all these, these climbs, you know, were about him. And then and so he starts building schools, you know, in uh, Afghanistan and realizes that the, the second half of his life is about building schools. And so I've, I've kind of held on to his ideas. Like it was, it was time to stop climbing mountains and it's time to start building schools. And that's really where the, the gallery comes into play, where it's like, I feel like the gallery at first was an art gallery. And now I want it to be a social player in the sense that everybody who walks through that door, I want to leave with something. And so that's why we give away a 100-page book to everybody that comes in. And those, that book is filled with kind of our artist philosophical doctrines. We have a rock stacking table so people can participate and build their own sculptural, you know, elements. We have a swing in there. We have, and the idea was to slowly add and add and add to the gallery so that when people came in, they felt their own little, you know, like uh, conjuring up their own little creative spirit and maybe walking out with a little bit more license or permission to, to maybe go down that road. an extra twinkle in their eye. Yeah, and, and that's literally like one of my, I love telling the story of this, you know, police officer who came in and, you know, we'd immediately sit down on the couch while his wife looked around and, and uh, you know, kind of telling him, you know, you're allowed to like whatever you like. You know, there's no re- and then I did a painting of a Guinness bottle. And he's like, I like that painting. You know what I mean? And I was like, all right, look at it, connect into a painting. Yeah, it's a painting of a beer bottle, and, but that's awesome. Like, he likes this. And then, you know, it comes back six months later and he feels just a little bit more open and he's showing somebody. Oh, well, this is where they do this and this is, this is this artist. He's pretty cool. He does underwater stuff and this guy's this. And I'm like, look at it. It's, it's whatever. <laughs> and then he comes back, you know, maybe a year later at some point and says, you know, the last time I left here, I went home and I, uh, I made banana bread. And I was like, done. <laughs> we have achieved our goals because that, what it was about is a police officer was never felt comfortable in art gallery, slowly warming up, feeling comfortable and realizing that he could do something creative himself. And, and again, every action can almost be creative. So the idea of him baking banana bread was like, this, this is what it was about. And now with that as our motivator, I, I feel like through the vendue, through our own space, this and that, whatever, with this sky's the limit for how much we can kind of employ through the business to allow people to just be moved in their experience. Giving little kids sketchbooks is like a dream. I mean, there's oh, these yeah. little passport size sketchbooks that says RLS junior artist. No adult is allowed to have one. So I love the parents like, oh, can I grab one? I'm like, no, <laughs> it's only for kids. And then we give them a little, and the first night that we did it, we like put them all around the gallery. It was an opening night. And I look around and there's like 16 kids under the age of like 10 sitting on floors and couches and this and that, whatever, drawing. And I'm like, oh, 
I mean, this is all I could ever ask for. So I love the fact that, you know, this is just the beginning of that being the, the doctrine that fuels the gallery. And there's to get hopefully the, many more years to come. To get that many kids to put down an electronic device, <laughs> and, that's impressive. Well, and it's funny, they all immediately like gravitate. You know, I'll ask kids when they walk in the door, you know, if you could take home any painting today, which one would it be? And like you ask that to adults and they're like, you, you almost see them look at the price tags. They're like, hmm. hmm, that really expensive one over there. And you ask a kid that and they'll spend 20 minutes like going up the stairs and down the stairs and oh, up yeah. the stairs and down the stairs. And they're like, this one. And it could be anything and for any reason. What I love is, again, it, it's it's them recognizing. I, I think when people choose which art piece of artwork they would take home, they're they're showing themselves something. They're showing you, you know, what if, if money was no mm. object, what do you connect to? Yeah when it comes to a visual representation. And kids are great because they'll be like, oh, that reminds me of my cat. You know what I mean? And it's like a painting of a lollipop. And you're like, cool. I love, <laughs> I love your mind and how it works. You know? I had a, um, there's a woman who helps me uh, clean my house. Her name's Adela. She's wonderful. And her, she's got four daughters. Her youngest is named uh, Genesis, Genesis. And, yeah. and I'm her padrino <laughs> and her godfather. And so... Adela comes over with her children. Three of them are in school usually, so a lot of times she'll just come with with Genesis. Uh, with and I always want to find ways to to get hang out with her when she's there at the house. And last year, I gave her a big piece of paper and a whole bunch of colored coloring markers. I'm like, oh, you'll love this, you know. And I, I left. I, I might have left the room for a half hour, maybe twenty minutes, but I came back and she had drawn. <laughs> On the paper, of course, first. And yeah. then was like, oh, just this got, is fun. Just got started. She drew on the couch. She drew on the lampshade. She drew on the table. And she drew all over one of my paintings. <laughs> I was like, holy cow, man. That was incredibly destructive yeah. and creative. Yeah. I'll give you that. And I gave it to you. So yeah. I can't really like, I didn't even tell her mom that yeah. it happened. I was like, oh my God, she's going to be mortified. So I just like hid as much evidence as I could. I do feel like Took the, square, the pens away. The square rectangle or the, the shape for a child is like, I will not be bounded right. by this, right. this shape. <laughs> that was clearly what she was saying. <laughs> Thanks for the kickoff with the paper, but I got this. <laughs> yeah. I got this. I got the concept. Wait to see where we can take this. Exactly. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting thinking about going back to meditation and Annapurna and, and the way that culture shifts you and then your re-entry um, I find that so like one of the questions that we asked was about an alter ego mm-hmm. and you mentioned it would be, you know, a traveling monk essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm definitely, I gravitate towards that concept. I, that really resonates with me as well. And then there's a huge part of me that pulls me right back that says, no, that would like, I've got my family, my friends, my city, my community, my son, you know, and I don't want to. I don't want to go off elsewhere. I want to find a way to inhabit that space right here. And how do you go about balancing those two things? It sounds like that's what you're trying to do with the gallery and with your practice at home. But when you talk about when you reference this mother culture, that you, you know we're all in this stream, and it's so easy to even forget that we're in a river that's moving really fast, that's propelled forward. How do you find ways to to slow that down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that meditation practice is that way. That is the way. It's like I have to give myself. And, you know, I remember someone saying, you know, like one of the most radical ideas in 2017 um, is is Mm self-love. Where it's like actually being like, you know, we have such this 
Puritan point of view of like work is good, you know, play is is fanciful and vanitas, but you know, you know, we don't deserve it as much. We should be working. Work is, is good for us. And it's a badge of honor, right? Yeah. And I'm gonna wear it. It says I'm so yeah. busy. Yeah. And my my uncle Bob the Basil Pennington there always said like we should be working three days a week max, you know what I mean? And putting our best foot forward during those days and then and then just celebrating life and mm. being with each other the rest of the time. And so it's one of those things where I'm like, even if it's only a little bit, I have to give myself this this moment each day. And what I when I say the like the alter ego, it's it's because I know that when I go there, when I give myself that that time, all becomes effortless and right with the world once again. No matter how much strife and struggle or anything that's that's taking place, I realize that you know, in the grand scheme, when we when we step back at this giant synchronistic you know symphony of of, of life, we really shouldn't sweat any small stuff because I'm like we're so minute and it's so big and it's so beautiful and it's so unknown and I'm like and and there's a release in knowing that no human being that ever walked the planet knew. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's why and what and where we're going and this and that, whatever. It's all this big, beautiful, open-ended thing. So it's there's a release to it. But it's like unless I can bring myself to that mindset, then I end up floating down that stream. And then I, you know, I'll catch myself being like, what am I doing? Like mm. my job as a parent specifically right now is to show them that you can exist in this space and you can give yourself this space and you can still interact with and that. And the only way world. to show them that is, is to be that, yeah. right? So I mean, words that's are the, cheap. Right, right. Especially to children, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's that that was the biggest wake up call to me when Bayes was born mm-hmm. was was realizing that two way street. You know, I was definitely scared of being a parent. Yeah, and I realized very quickly, oh wow, like I'm not the teacher all the time. Yeah. If anything, especially in those beginning years, I remember some saying, you know, children are enlightened until the age of about two and a half, and then we just take that away from them. And we, we start feeding them down that same that same culture. So in the beginning, I, you know, I, I told people when my daughter Taya was born that for you know ten years prior I had sought my philosophical doctrine. You know, I had read everything I could read and meditation and mentors and people and this, and I'm looking for this this answer, whatever like that. And then my daughter shows up, and I was like, boom, you know what I mean? And I'm like, how how have I known people? You know, hundreds if not thousands of people for decades. And somehow immediately you're my favorite person I've ever known. And like you, you moved to the top of the list, but I was like, biologically, I was like, oh, this, this, everything about this is right. And then when I started looking at her, I was like, oh, there's just no falsehood. When she's happy, when she's happy, she's sad, when she's sad, there's nothing about her that is ever manipulated. And so one of the things I think that's great about being a parent is when you do realize that they're the teachers and you're the student, I'm like, I'm just going to suck all this in right now and be like, I want to be more like you on a daily basis. And, and then you also, you know, I feel like I shame myself sometimes for realizing how much I do temper my authentic feelings. You know, mm. if I'm excited or I want to cry or want to yell or want to whatever, I don't. I usually like in some way calculate in some way, you know, how I'm going to ride this wave a little easier. And what I love about them is I'm like, they'll cry right in the middle of anything. Get it you know right what I mean? out. I'm like, oh no, you know, like there's so many people around this is, and this is when you're going to lose it. Okay. All right, let's do this. Here but we go. if anything, like they're the healthier, you know, human Isn't that, in the moment. that experience we talked about with Chris Jordan, where he was like, just yeah. experience it fully in that moment. And let it go. And yeah. let it go. And, and you can be uh, laughing seconds later. Yeah, because he was you talking fully... About- He's talking about the uh, the Africa, the in Africa, uh, and elephants that he had seen that were brutally yeah. murdered, and, and and seeing 
the eyes go out and, yeah. and death appear and just being sort of horrified and just like being hit with a storm of emotion, um, but just having it flood out and on the other side, laughter. I love my yeah. mother-in-law says, um, if you sit with anything long enough, it turns to joy. Yeah. Mm. But face it, type thing. And I think that you know, there's something in that where it's like, you know, nature dies with grace. Mm-hmm. You never you'll never see a flower or a bird die with with drama. You know what I mean? Like it's it's gonna go, you know, with with an elegance and a poise involved. And I feel like even that scene, you can somehow if you look at it, face it, sit with it, whatever, it will pass through you and, and be okay on the other side. And that's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I have uh, I've been reading this quote you shared by mm-hmm. Thomas Cooley. Yeah, and I'm still not quite it, getting my head around it. It's a tough one to wrap so, your brain around. Uh, so, so share with me. I'm going to read it for our audience. I am not who you think I am. I am not who I think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Yeah. So my father. That was one of those. Pearls of wisdom from a psychologist on the in the, the mountains of the Himalayas that he says to you and then like walks away and you're like, uh oh, uh oh, my brain is spiraling. I don't, I can't, I can't, you know, process what just happened. But I, it, it's a liberating quote because it basically says, you know, like if I think that you think I'm funny, then I'm funny. You know what I mean? Type thing. So like, in, in, to a certain degree, like mm. I'm in charge of the perspective that I think everyone else holds towards mm. me. You know what I mean? So if I want to see the world as if people see me as filled with light, then I'm going to feel filled with light. If I'm going to see, think everybody thinks I'm a loser, then I'm going to, I'm going to feel a little bit like a loser. So I feel like it, it put a little bit of the social, the responsibility onto my own shoulders of saying like, it's, it's your choice how you wish to see yourself, but even more importantly, how you wish to believe the world sees the, you. The world sees yeah. you. Yeah. And, Interesting. And we all deserve to be seen, you know, through through a positive lens, but usually through our experiences, environments, we, you know, we're shaming ourselves for, for one reason or another based on... You know, I mean, so often the, the conclusion might be that the individual would think that everybody thinks poorly of them. Yeah, which is crazy. And so that would be the takeaway would be, oh, that's a really sort of a sad quote. Yeah. I don't want to think about that. But I love the way that you process that, which is, oh, okay. So that gives me permission to say, I think everybody in the room thinks I'm a pretty good guy. And the the easiest way to come to that conclusion is to say like, well, how do I feel? Like, how do I feel? Do I feel like everyone else is a good person or a bad person? I'm like, oh, no, I see everybody is this, you know, beautiful you know, universal being that's filled with light. And so I'm like, why wouldn't I see that? In myself? That, that same lens on myself. And then why wouldn't other people have that lens on myself? And and mm. it all of a sudden becomes, you know, like if we all just gave ourselves the freedom to to see each other in a, in a positive way, then it would just go a lot easier. <laughs> the whole the whole situation. The whole situation. <laughs> We've solved it. Yeah. I like that, it. Well, that, yeah, that was a riddle for me, yeah. man. But, <laughs> I love the answer. I yeah, me too. Me the too. Inverse paranoid. You know, one of the, right. Yeah. Right. But one of the pers- other ones he gave uh, during that, what I remember loving was um, uh, freedom is what you do with what's been done to you. And I love mm. that as a quote as well for that same kind yeah. of reason. It's like we all have our circumstance, but it's kind of like our freedom lies in our ability to choose mm-hmm. the aftermath of those circumstances. So, so true. So true. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you enough how uh, appreciative I am for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. Really appreciated uh, and enjoyed uh, your your adventures and hearing about them. I hope our guests do as well. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. th- I think you guys are doing a, a really cool thing here. Again, we, as we were talking before, there's something really neat about anytime people are sharing the the behind the scenes. You well, know, and you anything. mentioned one of your answers is is that it, a conversation that you might you would like to have but aren't having all the time, which is you'd love to be able to connect to the people in your immediate circle, your family, your friends, uh, about their existential spiritual journeys, you know, uh, you know, get below the surface and scratching the surface and go deeper. And that's, that's one of my favorite things to do. And the same, and Alex is the same way. That's why we do this is, you know, I've known you Rob for a long time, but I now know you way better now having sat down intentionally to talk about something very personal to you. And I feel like hopefully our, our, our listeners feel the same way. And it's, it's, it's a real blessing and a gift to be able to do this, you know, to sit down and, and talk to people like this. Cause it, it is, again, it's, it's, I love sharing the story and, and illuminating aspects of you that people might not know, but there are lessons that, that I pick up beyond just the music choices, which are awesome because there's so many different choices that I've never I've heard I've been of. writing down a lot right? of notes yeah. from this <laughs> conversation. Alex is taking notes already, you know. So I'm it's sending it's, my kids over to Rob. It's then. a great two-way street. Yeah. Well, and it's great that, you know, I think there's something neat about the fact that any person you were to do this with or interview with yeah. is going to be is, have an equal amount of, of, of stuff to say and experience to share and, and lessons to be learned for the, the other parts. I agree. I agree. And that's hopefully the message we're, we're trying to convey. It, it, you know, going back to intention, that's the intention for the show is to give people permission to realize that, that uh, that's what life is made of, is a series of essentially calls into the unknown. Yeah. And once you hear your story about opening a gallery with nothing, not even the second month's mortgage, I think it's pretty easy for people to come and assume Robert Lang at this point came with some money in the bank and that's why it was so e- easy to start this gallery, you know? Because at mean, this we, point we it does look... A, we sold a DVD collection. Oh, dude. I, mean, I love that, a, by the way. It was a nice DVD collection so, <laughs> in, a, in a big, you know, like um, those things that hold the sleeves yeah. or whatever like that. And I was like, I think we got like, you know, $75 for like 240 you're DVDs, gonna, but I'm like, we're going to need this $75 to yeah. make this work. <laughs> it, I laughed so hard when I when you said that because when I when I started up Artisom, yeah. the frame shop on East Bay Street, I did the same thing. Like I valued yeah. my CD collection yeah. when I went to the bank to get a loan. And the guy was like, well, first of all, you don't get a loan. Yeah. Second of all, like you really can't value that CD. Like we're not going to take that in as like an asset. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I'm like, dang, the Small Business Association really <laughs> failed me here. Because yeah. there was a, a score. What is it? The oh, South yeah. Carolina Office of Retired Executives was trying to help us get a loan. And, yeah. and, and I'm surprised that they didn't catch that one. Those are the, there's, that was such a fun time in life though, where you're like, you're getting, you're, you're scraping in every direction. You have this ideal, you're, you know, you're, you're seeking something out. And, you know, I, I'd get like a check from American Eagle and it'd be like $61. I'm like, in the bank, let's do this. We're, you know, we're building our empire. And you know what I mean? And we're literally <laughs> just trying to get to like a month's rent right. and, and some very basic renovations. And our, you know, our parents helped a little bit in like, you know, if they're putting down the floors, you know, they're oh, like, it was a team effort I, down there. I'll, I remember I'll, that. I'll buy the lunch today because right. I know you guys right. need it. Well, I'll echo Alex's sentiment. Great to sit down with you. It was I'm sure uh, uh, everybody else, uh, I hope, enjoys it as much as we have. Um, and, you know, speaking of spiritual experiences, it's hard to not have a taste of that when you listen to Sigur Ross. So we're going to 
close out with some Sigurás. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Varo, Varo or who knows? There are yeah. accents on every yeah. letter. But it's a wonderful song. And uh, If you ever get a chance to see them, they are... We took our daughter when she was still in the womb. Oh, yeah. To a yeah. Rose, uh, concert just because Jonesy, the, the lead singer, is, I swear, some sort of angelic non-human with an ability to do things with his voice that... He, I, Every time he would end a song, I'd be like, I, I don't know where I was. I've, I've been gone for quite a moment. Yeah. And then another song coming on, you go right back in and you're like, you know, you talk about the idea of like a flow state. Yeah. I feel like this man just walks around just, and his music just puts everybody into some hypnotic flow state that you can't escape. And so he's, he's, a, he's a powerful, powerful musician. And I've never looked into any of the lyrics. Yeah, I haven't either. Because I don't want to. Yeah. I just want it to exist as it is, which is just, It works just, as it is. so, so good. Yeah. Um, just, just through sound. All right. Well, everybody get comfortable. Settle in. Put on an eye mask if you need to. Cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Arthur. 